0: Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, attorney Dick Comer talks about the laws that hamper school choice. Mark Calabria discusses the state of the economy. Author Charles Murray describes the tyranny of the regulatory state. Author Jay Cost details the history of American political corruption. And Kentucky Senator Rand Paul talks about opportunities for libertarians in the coming years. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Federal Employment Program, known as E-Verify, is effectively a vast federal database and a government permission slip for almost every job in the United States. What could go wrong? So we're here to talk about that, the program, and uh, some of its defenders and uh, reasons that E-Verify may not be such a great deal for Americans. Jim Harper, the senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of the book, Identity Crisis, which has only become more relevant in the years since uh, it came out. And Alex Narasta, an immigration policy analyst here at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be with you. Thanks. So just to begin here, you uh, you guys are working on a paper that is detailing some of the problems with eVerify. So just to get our listeners caught up here, what is E-Verify? What is it supposed to do?
1: So E-Verify is a electronic eligibility employment verification system run by the federal government. Ideally, How it's supposed to work is an employer is supposed to enter the identity information off of the Form I-9 into an online database to verify that their new hires are legally allowed to work in the United States. It it was implemented as part of a basic pilot program. It started in 1996 uh, based on the 1986 IRCA law, which mandated employment verification for unlawful immigrants in the United States.
0: Employment verification for unlawful
1: immigrants. Well, I'm sorry, employment verification for all people working in the United States to guarantee that employers do not hire unlawful immigrants.
0: Now, was this part of the 86 reform to uh, immigration law?
1: The Form I 9, which was a paper check version of this system, uh, which basically just was a file put away in an employer's office, was sort of the predecessor to this. E Verify takes that I 9 system and then checks it against the federal government databases where this information is stored in order to verify the information.
2: He verifies the next step in a, what is a decades-long effort to, to make a go of internal enforcement of immigration law. The basic of, of enforcing immigration law is to, to have a border that where people um, prove their bona fides for entering the country and are excluded if they're not allowed in the country. While we have borders, we need such a thing. Internal enforcement is the idea that you can shut off the jobs magnet, uh, making it impossible to hire illegal immigrants uh, w- would, in the theory, prevent them from entering the U.S., but the actual practice, as we'll see, is quite different. To the
0: extent, of course, that there are jobs that need to be filled in the United States and employers who want to hire effectively anybody to do that job, I, I would think they would be very worried about. Uh, absent an effective e-verify program if immigrants just stopped wanting to come to the United States. That seems like it would be a negative indicator for our economy.
1: Uh, it certainly would be. A lot of economists are right to point out that if there were no unlawful immigrants or immigrants in the United States, the wages for some of these professions would rise. And that is absolutely true. But the effect of wi- rising wages for some of these professions is that it would it would destroy them in the United States. So there's... Wages have to be at a certain level for industries to be competitive in the United States, to be competitive with foreign imports and otherwise. So for these industries to survive, there needs to be a large number of workers in some professions to provide the goods and services demanded by Americans. Another effect of cutting off this supplier would be an increase in prices for a lot of the goods and services supplied and a de- uh, basically a pushing down of the skills of most Americans to fill a lot of these jobs.
0: The goal of everify is to, as Jim Harper said, turn off the jobs magnet. So, based upon our fairly limited experience so far with everify, what has been the result?
1: Well, everify has been mandated in some states in the United States uh, for all new hires in Alabama, uh, Mississippi, South Carolina, and most famously in Arizona. So they mandated it beginning on January first, two thousand and eight. And we, so we've been able to see what's happened after that point. And what we see is only a bare majority of new hires in Arizona are actually run through the system. So only about 55% of all new hires recall that 100% actually have to be run through the system. So we don't see it being used that often. And the effect on uh, wages of suspected unlawful immigrants uh, has been very small. The typical Immigrant from Mexico can expect a 253% increase in wages from coming to the United States and working. Because of E-Verify in Arizona, it lowered that expected increase to only 240%. So the impact of E-Verify has been to only very slightly decrease the expected wages, not nearly enough to turn off the jobs magnet.
0: So unlawful immigrants to the United States who could have previously expected a giant, huge, incredible raise only get a giant, huge, pretty, incredible raise.
1: That's right. And uh, to turn off the jobs magnet entirely, you would have to crush the benefits of coming to this country illegally. And what e verified does is only very, very slightly on the margin decrease them.
2: I think that statistic that Alex has is, is important, but and you can express it a different way in human terms. People are coming to the U.S. from Mexico and Central America and elsewhere from real grinding poverty that many people in the U.S. can't actually imagine exists on our continent and it does uh, south of the U.S. border. And so they dedicate a lot of ingenuity and a lot of effort to coming to the United States to work and better themselves, uh, doubling their salary in the process and the difference that he cites, uh, you know, 10 percentage points. Uh, isn't going to make the difference to these uh, people who are are intending to to work hard to better their own lives and that of their families, uh, south of the U.S. border. In terms of what eVerify does and what the
0: risks are of just creating another federal database that, presumably, doesn't provide a lot of the checks that you would expect uh, going through, like for example, going to court. You expect certain things when you go to court. It's what do we know about how eVerify actually functions?
2: Well, again, the the idea, the theory is you run information from the I nine form past the Social Security Administration, and for the in the case of uh, immigrants uh, through uh, DHS databases that reflect legal immigration into the country, you should get back a result. Does the name match the Social Security number? Well, that is probably legitimate. Uh, And the practice though is quite different. Uh, One fact that has to be reconciled is that the databases aren't that good. People change their names for example. Uh, There's an error rate, a natural error rate in the Social Security Administration data. This process can also be foiled by people adopting a name and Social Security number That actually match and there's no biometric check currently in the majority of the program that that allows the employer to be certain that this name is actually permanently affixed to this person. And so identity frauds that began in relatively simple ways in the past, the I-9 simply required you to, to present a social security number and it was never checked. Now those frauds have to deepen just a little bit to where you access a name and a social security number. That, that do indeed match. Uh, if the program were intensified so that a more serious, uh, including a biometric check were done on, on workers, they would continue to deepen their identity frauds uh, because of the, ex- the extremely high value. The, the I-9 process first and now E-Verify are creating a market for false documents. And it's very unlikely, given the economic realities that Alex cites, very unlikely that the people who provide identity documents and the people who use them are going to throw up their hands and quit because it's getting more and more profitable more as the program grows more and more intense. And like a lot of uh, crimes that in some cases
0: the only person who's been victimized is somebody who's had their identity stolen – that is, an employer and a prospective employee have to then engage in this sort of criminal conspiracy uh, in order to do something that doesn't actually harm anyone.
2: Yeah, And so fraud is wrong. Let's, let's right. establish but, but that. I wanna,
0: but I wanna, my, my question is that you just want somebody to work for you and do a job and the, that you have to – in order to really carry it out well – the two of you sort of have to – one of you has to look the other way. The other person has to uh, understand that they have to engage in a pretty serious crime in order to do this thing that uh, isn't, shouldn't, isn't otherwise a problem.
2: It's very unlikely that employers are going to really put a lot of energy into uh, establishing that potential workers are, are who they say they are. So um, folks that are in the roofing business, tours, et cetera, et cetera, are not going to become expert document checkers. The frauds that are committed by, by illegal workers uh, are wrong, but you have to recognize the consequences of them are employment and productivity. The victim, uh, so-called, if the identity fraud isn't used for financial services or you know, isn't extended into other realms, the victim suffers um, not at all ex- unless the program denies the, the person whose identity is used employment because they see the use of the name and number. Elsewhere in society, so that's a that's a, another potential challenge is that there could be identity frauds that deepen to where the actual uh, valid person is unable to work because of eVerify, and there are many challenges that Alex can detail about about eVerify bouncing uh, legitimate workers out and preventing them from accessing employment.
0: Okay, Alex Narasto, what do we know about uh, people who? shouldn't have been prevented from working by E-Verify, who have been?
1: So what we know is based on the last audit of the system, uh, somewhere around three-tenths of one percent of legal workers are are returned as a tentative non-confirmation uh, under the system, which means that they're tentatively not allowed to work until they're able to sort it out or they're init- or they're later confirmed to be an unlawful immigrant. Uh, that doesn't sound like a lot of people, but if this program was ramped up to the roughly 150 million or so workers in the United States, uh, that would be somewhere around half a million people who would be on who would be conf- uh, paid as an unlawful worker initially, and not allowed to work.
0: And what does that do to them?
1: Well, that means they have to start this process. They have 10 days to file an appeal of their tentative non-confirmation, uh, and then if the government through this appeals process, says, sorry, you are still an authorized worker. The employer cannot hire you. Uh, it also means that if they're confirmed as an American and that they're legal to work, then they have to start their job late. And they have to start the job after the fact. And what we see is uh, in a lot of, in most jobs, uh, the firm has to invest in the worker a certain amount of resources to get them up to the productivity level. So this delays that process, incurs costs on both workers and employers. But one of the interesting things in the system is that the employer has to tell, supposed to tell the worker that they've been denied employment initially. However, If the employer pre-screens all of his applicants by running all their names through E-Verify before calling back to interview them, a worker who's legal, whose data is messed up in the system, can get bounced around from employer to employer employer, denied an opportunity for an interview, and he won't know why.
0: What uh, person who knows that he is illegally in the United States is going to try to go through the process of getting their name corrected. Zero, I would assume. Um, but what happens? How do we uh, deal with the people who have gone through this process if they have to start a job late? What What recourse do they have of, of those problems being caused in their lives?
1: Well, uh, they have to fix the data in the government databases themselves. They have to identify that data with the help of the federal government and usually a Privacy Act request, which last estimate took about 104 days to determine which data is messed up, and then they have to go through the process of fixing it themselves through working with folks at SSA, at the Social Security Administration, or DHS.
2: There's a sort of shocking uh, assumption in e verifies remedies that the worker who's at the low end of the economic spectrum is perfectly ready and willing to engage with U.S. governmental and bureaucratic processes go to go to your local social security office how close is it to where you are who knows do you own a car not our problem and file your file your appeal you might have to use the privacy act in order to get information out of some arm of the government never mind that you've never heard of the privacy act before or the freedom of information act so this this regulation written in washington For Washingtonians, I I suppose, uh, lawyers and bureaucrats, um, will have real poor application when it comes to people who are at the bottom end of the economic ladder uh, trying to climb that ladder and being spit out by the E-Verify system, prevented from working, prevented from productive life, which actually should be something that our public policy promotes.
1: Uh, Of course, never fear. This information is available in a poorly written and difficult-to-find 88-page manual Uh, online that is made available to uh, both uh, workers and employers. So never fear it's buried in
0: technical legalese. Who wants this? I mean, in terms of people in Congress saying, no, 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 this is great. Uh, I remember uh, Ted Cruz was a fan of E-Verify, among others. Who are the biggest defenders of it? I think the biggest defender
1: currently is Representative Lamar Smith from Texas. He has introduced uh, a bill basically every year for the last four years called the Legal Workforce Act, which would mandate E-Verify for all new hires in the United States. Uh, Other Republican members who are in favor of stricter immigration enforcement also favor such a system. Uh, It's also important to notice that a lot of folks who raise the alarm bell about E-Verify are also Republicans who are worried about it potentially leading to a national ID card. One of the Interesting things that I've noticed is in almost all of these mandatory e-verify bills, either on the state level or on the federal level, there's a provision saying this cannot be used ever to help create a mandatory national ID. All
0: right. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. This is another government database. What could you use such a database for, Jim?
2: Well, if you're going to administer an individual benefit at the national level, you have to be able to know who you're dealing with. And so it's, a, it's an ineluctable part of E-Verify that there has to be a way of identifying people and you're doing it at a national scale. So that is the, is the seeds of a national identity system. And as you examine E-Verify and you see all these problems, these complications and counterattacks, there are natural improvements you can make. Let's get a biometric into our identity systems. Tie the name and the social security number to a picture or a thumbprint, or a retinal scan, or whatever it takes over time to really, really lock this thing down. We'll solve a problem and we'll improve this system so that we've got ourselves a good, strong E-Verify program. At the same time, you've created a, a system that takes all Americans, all workers, and ties them onto a biometric identity system. When that system is in place, What do you suppose is going to happen with it? Is it going to be restricted to controlling access to working only? No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, we've seen proposals already for the use of national ID to control access to health care, financial services and credit, uh, pharmaceuticals, guns and ammunition. The list goes on and on. If we create a system for tracking people nationally uh, to prevent illegal immigration, that system is almost certainly going to be used to track people and use and control their other activities and other other things they want to do in their lives, things that many of the conservative advocates of eVerify would very much not like the federal government to be doing.
1: And we already saw hints about this in 2010. Senators uh, Schumer and Graham proposed in that year a national biometric identity bill to help them further. Uh, enforce interior immigration uh, restrictions in the United States and to help weed illegal immigrant workers out of the labor force. So they've all, and uh, it's also important to note that a lot of the big private proponents of this, like Mark Akorian at the Center for Immigration Studies, Dan Stein at the Federation for American Immigration Reform, put down as their ultimate goal, the creation of a national ID card to aid in the enforcement of immigration. Of course, they fail to mention that it can be used, as Jim said, for almost anything else.
0: Gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Jim Harper, senior fellow at the Cato Institute, author of the book Identity Crisis, which uh, deals with some of these issues uh, related to identity. And Alex Narasta, immigration policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Again, if you'd like to learn more about E-Verify and some of its problems, you can go to our website, cato.org. Many laws are begging for a bit of civil disobedience at the hands of those who aren't hurting anyone through their technically illegal activities. Charles Murray has an idea about how to reduce the costs of that disobedience and maybe reward it a bit. He discussed his idea at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February.
3: The rule of law is the foundation of civilization and is especially essential to a free society. So the decision to engage in civil disobedience is not to be taken lightly. The first chapters of the book lay out the case that we have reached the point at which, in our history, civil disobedience is justified. Summarizing very quickly, in my view, America's system has been transmuted into something bearing only a structural resemblance to what the founders had in mind. The substance of what they created is nearly gone. I have found myself convinced of these truths. Some of this convincing has happened fairly recently. First, the founders' constitution has been discarded and distorted in ways that cannot be fixed for reasons that are inextricably embedded in constitutional jurisprudence. Aspects of America's legal system are lawless for reasons that are inextricably embedded in the use of law for social agendas. Congress and the regulatory state have become systemically corrupt for reasons that are inextricably embedded in the market for government favors. The federal government is in a state of advanced sclerosis for reasons that are inextricably embedded in the nature of advanced democracies inextricably embedded means that solutions are beyond the reach of the electoral process and legislative process. The citizenry is impelled to create new counterweights. I take about 100 some pages of fairly dense text to make those cases. I now turn to the question of how we are going to go about rolling back the regulatory state. And I'll I'll illustrate it with uh, a true story. It's the reason the book got written. My wife knows a guy in a town near us that I will call Bob. I can't identify him because it's too dangerous. Bob operates one of the many kinds of businesses that use Latino workers. What makes Bob different is that all of his Latino workers are documented. He spends 20 to 30 grand per year getting visas for his workers. He pays good wages, pays for their airfares. He's a model citizen of his community, a model employer. And guess what? He has been relentlessly harassed by the federal government. And my wife would come home and tell me the latest stories he had relayed to her about what they've been doing to it. And there were lots of them. And and the first reaction was, why pick on him? He's he's you know done the right thing. He's documented his workers. Why don't they go after all the people who have 100% undocumented uh, immigrants? He opened himself up by documenting his workers to easy enforcement by the regulators. He made himself a soft target. The story that tipped me over the edge involved a stupid regulation that Bob could not comply with. He didn't have enough American-born workers. He couldn't comply with it. He puts ads in the papers. The unemployment office sends him people who come into his office and say, I'm coming out here because I need to have interviews in order to maintain my unemployment benefits, but I don't want a job here. There's no way he could get Americans to work for him, and he was being forced to pay large fines because he didn't have enough. He became so frustrated that at one point he said to the bureaucrat who was harassing him, I'm going to fight this in court, to which the bureaucrat said, you fight this and we will put you out of business. And he knew That was true. At this point, I was getting so mad. Uh, Again, (laughs) I'm not making any of this up. This is the reason the book got written. That I said to my wife, I don't want to hear anymore. It just makes me too angry. And then I got this sudden thought. It was kind of a vision. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be cool if suddenly when the bureaucrat has just said, we will put you out of business, this guy in a pinstripe suit with a briefcase shows up and says, we are taking over this man's case. We will litigate it not only as long as it takes, we will seek to prolong the litigation. We will publicize that litigation in ways that will embarrass you and your bosses. None of this will cost uh, our client a penny, and we will reimburse him for any fine you are able to impose. And if you come back and bother him again, we will start the process all over again. And all at once, I also had the image of the government as the Wizard of Oz. I'm speaking to an audience that mostly has seen the Wizard of Oz. And, and uh, you will remember that at the end, this great booming voice is revealed to be this pathetic old man uh, when the curtain is pulled aside. And that's what I have in mind, to pull the curtain aside and demonstrate that all these thousands of laws that they have passed and regulations can only be enforced if we have voluntary compliance by the overwhelming majority of people. And that led to what the idea that I advocate in the book for what I'm calling the Madison Fund, a large foundation that funds legal services that will champion individual citizens against Goliath. Its longer range point is to make clear to other Americans that they don't have to take it anymore. There are ways to enforce an intrusive government to back off. Specifically, the Madison Fund would have three goals to defend people who are innocent of the regulatory charges against them, but also to defend people who are technically guilty of violating regulations that should not exist, drawing out that litigation as long as possible, making enforcement of the regulations more expensive to the regulatory agency than they're worth, and reimbursing fines that are levied. Third, to generate as much publicity as possible, both to raise the public's awareness of the government's harassment of people like them and to bring pressure a public opinion to bear on elected politicians and the staffs of regulatory agencies. Or to put it in another way, suggested to me by the head of the Institute for Justice, I want to put sugar in the regulatory state's gas tank.
0: The American founders planned for a republic and feared its corruption. Jay Cost thinks their fears are coming true. His new book, A Republic No More, reveals that big government has promoted corruption that favors the privileged over the many, corruption that is both legal and too often accepted. Cost spoke at the Cato Institute in February.
4: James Madison opens Federalist Number 10 with a very evocative phrase, the need to break and control the violence of faction. If you read the F- Federalist papers, you'll know that Hamilton is by far the better polemicist in those essays, but that phrase, violence of faction, still knocks me off my feet when I ponder it. And he de- defines a faction thusly. Quote, a number of citizens, whether amounting to a majority or minority of the whole, united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens, or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. So that gives us, gives me at least, a very useful definition of corruption. It occurs when the government does violence to the public interest or individual rights by allowing factions to dominate public policy for their own ends. It's incompatible with a Republican form of government. And so its suppression, in my opinion, is at the very heart of Madison's project. After all, a republic, a true republic, must resist faction if it hopes to govern for the sake of all and with respect to the individual rights of all. Madison rejected the idea that virtue, provided through civic education or public religion, could overwhelm what he saw as the inevitable human tendency toward factionalism. It is, he said, sown into the very nature of man. He also rejected other thinkers who suggested that a small nation or a city state would be ideal for a republic because in those instances, so the theory went, small groups are less likely to bicker over over big issues. But Madison observed, and especially during the 1780s, the experience of the state government saw exactly the opposite. And indeed, in the Federalist Papers, he makes the persuasive claim, persuasive in my opinion, that even when men don't have something substantive to bicker over, they will find, invent reasons to fight one another. So as an alternative to to this, Madison embraces an institutional solution. Because after all, if factionalism is sewn into the very nature of man, and uh, popular rule is at the heart of the Republican project, there's there's a problem there. Republican government. Governance is inherently unstable. If virtue doesn't cut it, and if a small size of a city state doesn't cut it, what do you do? Madison's solution, like I said, was institutional. He thought that so long as the institutions of government were well-designed, factionalism could be thwarted. And this idea, this principle is at the very heart of our complicated system of checks and balances. It is an effort to build the institutions of government just so just so that the government works on behalf of everybody rather than a select few. Madison called that goal the great desideratum of government, another very evocative phrase. Woodrow Wilson once called our constitutional regime a Newtonian system, with forces carefully calibrated against one another. In other words, the rules of the constitutional game were to be structured so that the vast array of forces in society could combine within the the government to produce something that is in the common interest that a faction may have representatives who will do its bidding in the government, but those agents will only possess limited power and will be regularly stymied by agents aligned with other factions. So through per Madison's theory, it's irrelevant if those who check these selfish ambitions are themselves driven by selfish ambitions. All that matters is the result. The only proposals that should make it through the constitutional gauntlet and be enacted into law will be those that benefit the people generally. Everything else will fall by the wayside, thus offering a decisive check on corruption and preserving the Republican integrity of the regime. But to be truly Madisonian requires something other than strict adherence to the Constitution. It's not simply a commitment to that document. And the Constitution cannot be understood as holy writ. It is rather a compromise hammered out at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, convened after the existing governmental authority had proved unworkable. The status quo at at that time could no longer stand, but what to do next? Delegates disagreed on many points, and two important disputes are illustrative for my purposes. The first is how powerful should the new government be and how dependent on local interests should it be? One group, led by Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and George Washington, wanted a powerful government, mostly immune from parochial or local concerns. Apart from a popularly elected House of Representatives, Madison's original proposal envisioned a government distant from localities. The Senate was to be selected by the House, the President by both chambers of Congress, and the Congress would actually have veto authority over state legislation. Finally, a Council of Revision would have authority to monitor and veto federal laws. Meanwhile, the Congress would have enormously wide discretion. It could legislate in all, this is a quote, in all cases to which the separate states are incompetent or in which the harmony of the United States may be interrupted by the exercise of individual legislation. The Virginia Plan was a truly national plan of government. Opponents rallied to a proposal from William Patterson of New Jersey, which called for slight alterations to the existing Articles of Confederation, with it, which had a limited power and parochial orientation. Under the New Jersey plan, the Continental Congress would acquire the power to tax, and an executive council would be created to provide direction to public policy. Now, the Constitution, as was finally worked out, occupies a middle ground between these views. After months of debate, delegates decided that the government should have more power than Patterson proposed, but less than what Madison proposed. And furthermore, it would depend more on local perspectives than Madison wanted, but less so than what Patterson envisioned. This was not merely a splitting of differences either. The framers sensibly blended divergent views, and you can appreciate this if you read Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. You can can see them taking care to make sure that this compromise actually worked, that the different various pieces fit together into a coherent whole. And it was a remarkable compromise for America of 1787. This was a people deeply skeptical of centralized power and fearful of creeping monarchism. Yet they were in desperate need of a central authority that could deal with urgent problems. The Constitution gave the government enough power to meet the existing crises, but not so much as to overwhelm state and local authority. It also distanced the government from popular sentiment, but certainly not without cutting it off entirely. And over the ensuing two centuries and more, the American population grew from 4 million to over 300 million, and society changed straining the original compromise and gradually forcing an effective revision of the governing charter. New problems emerged and repeatedly the public decided that the power of the federal government had to grow to deal with new threats, and grow it did. Today, Washington, D.C. has achieved the scope of centralized power that was envisioned in the Virginia Plan. For all intents and purposes, the federal government can legislate whenever it sees fit. Rarely does the Supreme Court remind Washington of any constitutional limit. Yet, and this this is where we turn to the problem of corruption. The country never substantially revised the institutions that channel government's ever-expanding powers. We have tinkered at the margins, tweaked the Electoral College after the election of 1800, mandated the direct election of senators, and of course, expanded the franchise. Nevertheless, for all of the growth in federal authority, the basic institutions remain largely as they were when the Constitution went into effect in 1787. And from the Madisonian perspective, this is a problem. If our institutions require a particular design in order to break and control the violence of faction and serve the common good, then it is imprudent to give greatly expanded powers to institutions that were originally intended to do much less.
0: So-called Blaine amendments were created to keep states from sending public funds to support Catholic education. And today, those same laws foil many efforts at giving parents more choice in education. Following the premiere of the Cato Institute film Live, Free, and Learn, scholarship tax credits in New Hampshire, Dick Comer, a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, described the history and trouble with Blaine amendments.
5: So you've got... 38 states with Blaine Amendments that basically say no money shall be appropriated to the benefit of uh, sectarian schools. Um, That's the classic Blaine Amendment. As the country became more religiously diverse and the uh, monopoly of the Protestant majority over the public schools was challenged by the Catholics, The Catholics started setting up their own schools because the public schools, as generically Protestant institutions, were uh, inhospitable to Catholic immigrant children. There actually was an effort to proselytize the Catholic kids and turn them into good Protestants. So the Catholics set up their own schools and started demanding that the public school funds be split between the Protestant public schools and the Um, uh, Catholic parochial schools and in fact um, this was very much the case in New Hampshire where um, the Catholic immigrants were coming from Quebec and from Ireland. Both jurisdictions uh, did in fact divide the school funds between Protestant and Catholic schools and they were asking for the same thing here in the United States. And the, the response was immediate and unequivocal, which was, no, we're gonna reserve all of the school funds for the Protestant public schools, and if you don't like it, you can go to your own schools, but not with any state funding. That's what the basic Blaine Amendment does. Now, the compelled support provisions are older. Um, There's about 27 of those. Some states have both, so you only have three states, Maine, Louisiana, and North Carolina that have neither. And the Compelled Support Clause just basically says that no person shall be compelled to support any church without his consent. Um, These were originally sort of disestablishment provisions in state constitutions uh, designed to eliminate the state religions because at the time of the the founding New England had established the Congregationalist Church for most of the New England states. The southern states had established the Anglican Church and everybody had to support those churches sometimes even attend those churches Um, and these provisions were intended to eliminate established religion but They have been construed occasionally by state supreme courts in much the same way as Blaine amendments can be construed to prohibit any aid to religious schools. Now the problem for school choice programs under both is that school choice programs don't actually support or aid schools directly at all. They aid parents and parents make the choice. And some states, with good Blaine law, interpret the provision to allow school choice programs. New York does. Um, Pennsylvania does. These are states that have Blaine amendments. Uh, Pennsylvania's got a compelled support clause. And states can misinterpret compelled support clauses to be hostile to school choice also, as the state of Vermont did. Um, So both of these sorts of provisions are subject to what I consider historical misinterpretations that serve to limit school choice programs. Properly construed, neither sort should in fact be interpreted to prohibit giving families a choice.
0: Years after the financial crisis, the U.S. economy continues to disappoint. At a February Cato Institute Capitol Hill event entitled The Libertarian State of the Union, Cato's Mark Calabria discussed the state of the economy across several metrics.
6: Of course, the State of the Union has to deal with partly where are we today uh, as a country, and I want to start a little bit uh, with where are we today as an economy. Uh, And, of course, uh, uh, politicians are often made or broken by the state of the economy, and, of course, the economy directly impacts all of us, whether it's weak or strong, uh, impacts our own job prospects, uh, impacts uh, the job prospects of of our friends and neighbors. Um, Don't need to remind you that we are entering the sixth year of recovery since the economy bottomed out in 2009. Uh, There are some bright spots, but I think it's fair to say that the economy disappoints uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, And yes, we've seen consumer spending in the second half of 2014 pick up. Consumer confidence has picked up. Uh, But to me, uh, an area of tremendous concern, uh, despite today's employment numbers, continues to be the labor market. Uh, We've had the uh, unemployment rate finally drop last last year to below 6 percent. Unfortunately, a considerable uh, percentage of this decline in the unemployment rate was workers leaving the labor force. So uh, declining unemployment for the wrong reason. Uh, Labor participation rates have steadily been falling since 2006. Uh, While these January numbers marked a small uptick, uh, that uptick was only large enough to offset the decline we saw in December. So we're still relatively flat. And to kind of put that in perspective, had the labor participation rates today remained at 2006 levels, our economy would have another 10 million jobs. Uh, certainly no trivial number. Uh, it was only in September of 2014 that we reached the number of jobs we had in 2007's peak. Uh, So it took us seven years simply to get back uh, to where we were, and of course that does not account for population growth. Uh, So I think the bottom line in our labor market would be it's falling far short of where we'd like it to be. Uh, And I think it's also fair to say it's falling far short of where uh, previous recessions have seen in terms of recoveries. Uh, Related to the weak labor market, of course, is a weakness in housing construction. Uh, We did break a million starts last year, uh, and that was an important threshold, but I'll I'll certainly say by way of comparison, at the peak of the housing market in 2006, we were twice as many at two million starts. Uh, So we still have a long way to go, and obviously that impacts employment uh, and construction and related industries. So, uh, you know, to summarize and sort of our economy before I move on more to policy, uh, I think we're slowly headed in the right direction. Uh, There are lots of weaknesses that remain. I, I would certainly say I don't think we're anywhere near the time where anybody should be taking a victory lap on the economy. There's also an extent to which I think it's easy to say that perhaps job market weakness is because of a lack of demand. Uh, Obviously, there can always be demand as a sort of-more demand as a definitional sense. Uh, But to me, one of the more important policy and economic questions uh, has been a disconnect between our labor markets and overall spending and jobs. Uh, Quite simply, GDP consumer spending for years uh, continued to increase, even if slowly, uh, with the labor market was essentially flat. Uh, And again, this has only changed in recent years, my own view. Uh, and I think this topic continues to be debated, uh, is that the expansion of means-tested programs, particularly in the form of mortgage forbearance, created very strong disincentives to work, uh, at least at prevailing wages. Uh, I think the recovery in housing prices and the contraction of the safety net are one of the major uh, forces behind the labor market starting to recover. Uh, So despite, or perhaps uh, because of this rebound in housing prices, home ownership rates have continued to decline, uh, they recently hit numbers that we haven't seen since the 1990s. In fact, our homeownership rate today is not far from where it was in 1960. Uh, a lot of areas I work on on a daily basis in mortgage finance, and one would think that we've, since we've gotten back to homeownership rates that we have literally not seen in decades, perhaps that would call for a rethinking of our US. mortgage finance policies. Unfortunately, I don't believe such is in the cards. Uh, Just recent weeks, the president announced a lowering of premiums in the Federal Housing Administration program with the goal of bringing more marginal borrowers into the market. We also saw the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac decide that despite their current condition, that the time is now right for these entities to take on more risk. And when I mean their current condition, I mean lack of any capital. Uh, The taxpayer is directly on the hook for any losses that these entities might take. Uh, So just like previous attempts to expand homeownership, to households that could not sustain it ended in tears. I fear this effort will as
3: well.
0: Shutting down many federal departments would barely register for most Americans, so says Rand Paul, the junior U.S. senator from Kentucky. Paul delivered the keynote address at the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit in Naples, Florida.
7: There is a libertarian moment going on in the country I think there really is I go to a lot of barbecues I have to watch what I eat and I'll have to you know see how much is going to be served tonight I try to eat half of what they serve me because I get too much food but I was at a barbecue in Paducah, Kentucky the other day and a fellow in front of me was loading up two plates of barbecue and I said you're not going to live very long eating like that <laughs> he said well my granddad lived to be 105 I bet your granddad didn't live to be 105 eating like that. He said, no, he lived to be 105 by minding his own business. (laughs) I think there is something to be said for that as maybe a maxim for government. If we had a government that were minding its own business, we'd all be much better off. And I mean in all realms of life, minding their own business. We want a government so small in Washington, we barely see it. Instead, it's the opposite. I tell people, it's sort of like going to AA. I'm Rand Paul, and I'm from flyover America. And the thing is, is that we are so much different, and thinking is so much different outside the city than inside the city. So when I first got to Washington, I said that I wanted to cut $500 billion because I was tired of the liberal media saying, oh, all you conservatives, you're for balancing the budget, but you'll never tell us where you'll cut. So I gave them a list of $500 billion I would cut, including four or five departments. I won't try to name them because it doesn't go over well if you don't remember the names of them, but... (laughs) Let's just say there are some of them you could eliminate and never know the difference. I think the danger is people would wake up and say, oh, they closed the Department of Commerce? When did they close the Department of Commerce? <laughs> these are big fights we need to have not only because they're waste, but we need to have these fights because politically what we need to tell people who haven't been considering us is we need to look at the poor and the working class and we need to say to them, we're not cut going to touch a penny of the safety net till we've cut every dollar of corporate welfare. We need to make a big cause getting rid of the XM. I think we can get rid of it. It's one of those things that there's a few select people in Washington lobbying for it. We could get rid of it and no one would notice other than one or two lobbyists in Washington. This is the kind of battle that if we're going to say that everybody in the country can't be on Medicaid, which is true, we can't borrow money from China to give everybody free stuff. Money doesn't grow on trees. But we need to make the lead cause of what we're getting rid of. Why don't we get rid of all the corporate welfare before we start talking about food stamps, before we start talking about welfare? All of that still has to be talked about. But the thing is, let's talk about things that will attract people to our party That haven't been attracted to our party previously. When you tell people you're from Kentucky and you wonder sort of what the difference is between living in flyover America and in Washington, you think of the shutdown. So I go home to Kentucky on the weekends and I get there and the government was shut down about a year ago and you know what the biggest complaint was? Why the hell did you open it back up? People did not notice. You realize the reason the president had to wrap the World War II monument was nobody was noticing that government was closed. It was a huge danger to those who believe in big government that people might not notice. So they hired all the government workers, you know, the ones who almost never do any work, to go and wrap the World War II monument. There is no entrance. There is no exit. It's completely, I think, paid for with private donations. I told people, I like to mow grass. I'll volunteer to mow the grass at the World War II monument. But they wrapped it, and they wrapped it. And I tell people, if you want an image of the government shutdown, if you want an image of what us in flyover America think about the people in Washington making all these decisions, the image you should remember is the World War II veterans going, cutting the barricades, and throwing them on the lawn at the White House. people ask me, though, what's the worst thing that's going on in Washington? What's the worst thing the president has done? How long do you have? (laughs) It's a long list, but really, you can sum it all up in one sort of sentence and say, it's the usurpation of power. It's the collapse of the separation of powers. There's supposed to be an equilibrium between the branches, between the co-equal branches of government. There's supposed to be equilibrium. And The founders said that we would pit ambition against ambition. We'd pit ambition of the legislature versus the ambition of the president. And because they would go back and forth, we would have an equilibrium where the powers were separated and they checked and balanced each other. It's gotten a lot worse under this president. It's accelerating under this president, but it didn't start with this president. It's been getting worse for 100 years. It's a bipartisan aggrandizement of power, taking of power from the people, taking a power from the people's representatives and sending it to one person. I'll give you an example. The president ran, and there wasn't a lot that I liked about what he ran on, but he said one thing that struck a nerve with me. It wasn't enough for me quite to vote for him, but... <laughs> in 2007, he said, no president should unilaterally go to war without the authority of Congress unless we're under imminent attack. Sounds like the Constitution to me. Sounds like what we should do. So we get into the middle of his term, and he attacks Libya without consulting Congress, and he just goes into Libya. And so about a year later, they were talking about going in and bombing Syria, and I was opposed to it and thought that uh, nothing good would come of it. In fact, I predicted that within a year of giving arms to the Syrian rebels, that we'd be back there fighting against our own arms. But he came to one of our lunches and I raised my hand and I said, Mr. President, you said that a president should never unilaterally go to war without the authority of Congress, unless under imminent attack. And his response was, well, yes, there was a threat of an imminent attack. I was like, really? He said, yes, there were tanks lined up to attack Benghazi. And I said, you mean, that's what you meant when you told us imminent attack? imminent attack of a foreign country, of a foreign city, that that would be the immediate threat that you wouldn't consult Congress for? I was thinking maybe New York. <laughs> Completely insane. That, but I think he truly believed that, and he was justifying his own words that he hadn't changed his position. He still believed that the president could exert this authority if, we were, if any place, I guess, on the planet were under imminent attack. The thing about Libya, or what I call Hillary's war in Libya, is that it sent so many bad signals on every level from top to bottom. If there's one consistency about foreign policy in the Middle East is that every time we've toppled a secular dictator, we've gotten chaos and the rise of radical Islam and less safety for our country. The same people that were cheering the freedom fighters in Libya... A year before, we're over there meeting secretly with Gaddafi's son trying to sell him more weapons. The freedom fighters, some of them we had already imprisoned. Some of them had been in our prisons in Iraq, had fought against us in Iraq or Afghanistan. These were the freedom fighters in Libya. Libya is a disaster. It's a jihadist wonderland. They swim in our embassy swimming pool. Not only did they assassinate our ambassador. Our embassy's gone. We have no representatives there. There's three different governments in Libya. And what kind of message do you think this sent to Iran? You remember what Gaddafi did. He negotiated away with the West his nuclear ambition. What kind of signal do you think we sent to Iran when we toppled the guy who gave up his nuclear ambition? Hillary's war in Libya is still leading to a disaster in negotiations with Iran. 15,000 surface-to-air missiles are missing. Where do you think they are? They may well be shooting down planes of ours or or troops of ours who are trying to defend diplomatic missions in, in, in Iraq from ISIS. It's an utter disaster. When I think about, though, the big problems that face us as a country, I think about what Lincoln said about power. Lincoln said that any man can stand adversity... But if you truly want to test a man's mettle, you want to test a man's character, give him power. That's the real problem here. And it's not just one party. This president represents that very well. He was given power and forgot everything he said. But it's been one president after another. Anybody here ever been disappointed by a Republican president? Here's the thing, we're gonna have a choice. We're gonna have a choice as this moves forward. I find people who are some of the greatest givers to causes who wait till after the nominating process and then they're gonna pour hundreds of millions of dollars in to support the nominee. Well, what if that doesn't change the country? What if you get a nominee that's maybe slightly better than the other side and so close to the other side that nothing ever changes? Think about when we elected the first George Bush the person he made in charge of the EPA, with one stroke of the pen, doubled the amount of wetlands in our country. They just redefined wetlands. And actually, I am a moderate. I am, for the federal government, protecting the Everglades. I am for protecting certain parks and things we want to protect. There is some role for the federal government in this. But the thing is, my backyard is not a wetlands, and they can stay the hell out of my backyard. The Clean Water Act says that you can't discharge pollutants into navigable streams. I'm okay with that. But they've defined dirt as a pollutant in my backyard as a navigable stream. And what do they do to you if you defy them? I'll tell you what they do to you. Ken Lucas, 10 years ago, was 70 years old, and he was developing property in southern Mississippi. And he had the audacity to put clean dirt on his own land to improve the elevation. This was land that had no standing water, had no swamp, had no everglades, had trees growing on it. It was considered by many to be upland, not to be swampland. He was put in prison for 10 years. He's been there all 10 years. He's set to get out, I think, this month. He's been in prison for 10 years. His daughter was 43, never had a traffic ticket, was helping him in the real estate office to sell the lots. She was given 84 months in prison. They finally were so embarrassed that they got her out on some kind of good behavior. But typically, with these federal sentences, you can't get out early. There There is no probation. There is no getting out for good behavior. She had a baby at the time that didn't see her for two years. She spent 26 months in jail. Your government is out of control. Its tentacles reach into every aspect of your life, and it's time to rebel. I mean, it's time to stand up and do something. I'm talking about rebel with your wallets, all right? <laughs> no, no. You know, hit them over the head with your wallets, but don't. don't we're not for uh, firearms being used against government. But by the way, if we are going to regulate firearms, let's start with the government. The government has 48 federal agencies that have SWAT teams. I'm not kidding you. Now, I'm okay with the FBI and the police having guns. We need to have guns. There are violent people we need protection from. However, I'm not so keen on the USDA having firearms. There was a family in Nixon, or Nixa, Missouri, John and Judy Dollarite, and these were some really bad people. They decided they were gonna grow bunnies. And uh, they wanted their 14-year-old son to learn about business. So the 14-year-old started doing it, and as bunnies do, they reproduced, and he got pretty successful. So successful that the USDA noticed. So the USDA came in. They uh, shut the place down, padlocked the barn. Nobody actually went to jail, but they did fine them $91,000. And the government said, oh, it's no big deal. You can pay by credit card. But if you don't pay by credit card, by the end of the month, it'll be $3.1 million and counting. So their bills just kept going on and on. This went on for years. Finally, politicians intervened. People were making phone calls. It was being lampooned all over the national news. And finally, the government decided, we got to put this to rest. You know, This has given us some bad publicity. So they sent over to the family. They said, we'll let you off the hook if you'll sign a consent degree. To never own farm animals. This is a family that lives on a farm in a rural part of Missouri. You know what they told them? They, I can't do this. And, and can you give hand signals? They gave them the middle fingers. What they did. The family said, the family said, screw you. We're just we're you know we're going to ignore your consent disorder. But this is going on throughout you know the country. The Sackett family in Idaho had a lot they wanted to develop. The government started fining them $75,000 a day because they put gravel on their lot. Said once again it was a wetlands even though their neighbors had built on the same incline years before and had two standing houses and they're building on the lot in between two houses. We've got a government that's out of control. But if you nominate and elect another Republican that appoints someone to be head of the EPA that doubles the wetlands and says that anything can be a wetland that you can drill into the soil and find water in the soil at all, it's a problem. We need the opposite. We need someone who would actually get in charge of government and to every department of government appoint people like Calvin Coolidge that would go through every iota of every budget and cut and cut and cut until we balance the budget. <laughs> Amity Shlaes wrote a great book about Calvin Coolidge. anybody read? It's a great book. But there was in there, there was a, a good story I liked about how how I love stories about you know how people are very important sometimes to pay attention to detail. So Calvin Coolidge is the president. And out of his salary, he had to pay for entertainment. So like, you know, an ambassador from England or different people would come and visit They'd have state dinners, he had to pay for it out of his salary. So he'd be down in the kitchen saying, hmm, I noticed we had four hams, and I think we could have gotten away with just three hams tonight. (laughs) He met with the Secretary of Treasury every week, and he balanced the budget. One of the things I plan on doing in the next six months to a year in Congress is I'm not on appropriations. They don't trust anybody who's conservative to be on an appropriations committee. <laughs> but I am on other committees, and I'm now in charge of two subcommittees. We're going to use our subcommittees just to look at waste. And as we look at waste and categorize it, we're going to look for the legal language on how to defund it an appropriation bill, and then we're going to walk over the exact language and sit down with the subcommittee chairman in charge of that money and say, look, we just found 500 ways to cut 500 million or 500 billion, whatever it is, and that's what I'm promoting all within our caucus is that we take all the committee structure, we pass all the appropriation bills, but we load them up, not with one rule on immigration, but with hundreds and hundreds of rules to try to eliminate waste. I think we can do it. If we want to win, our ideas win. You're doing your part you know, in the long-term battle with free market ideas. But if you want, in the, want to win in the political sense, I think we need to be boldly for what we are for. I have no idea what the last two Republican nominees were for as far as tax policy. I'm pretty sure it was revenue-neutral tax reform. I tell people, if that's what we're for, I'm going home. I have no desire for the left half of the room to pay less so the right half of the room can pay more so everybody can pay the same. That's what revenue neutral is. Once upon a time, we were the party, the Republican Party was the party of cutting taxes. Why shouldn't we say and make the argument that that's how we're going to stimulate the economy? We're going to leave more money in the economy. There's the productive sector, you, and there's the non-productive sector, the government. I tell people there are two reasons why you should minimize government. One's the liberty argument. Thomas Paine said that government is a necessary evil. Some people recall and say, oh, you're saying government's evil. Well, government is necessary. You have to have some government. You've got to defend the country. The things government has, we have to do through government. But you have to give up some of your liberty. What is your liberty? It's what you work for. It's what you're paid in. It's the script that you pay to government. That's a portion of your liberty you give up. And I'm not saying we don't have government. I'm just saying there's an argument for wanting to maximize your liberty and minimize what you give to government, minimize what government does. But the other argument the efficiency argument. This is the Milton Friedman argument that says nobody spends somebody else's money as wisely as your own. Ask any politician if they laid awake at night because they spent a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars and it went sour. Nobody does. Every one of you thinks about if you're paying your mortgage or paying your employees or paying back the loan for your business, you all think about it and you feel it inside. That's what makes you good at making decisions. No one in government thinks about that. No one worries about any money they spend. You think the guy that decided to give Solyndra 535 million? You think he's not sleeping well at night? No, he probably got a plum job. He's probably back in industry, and he'll rotate back into government and back out of industry. If we want to win, we also, beyond being boldly for what we are for, we got to take our message to new people. The message of privacy and that the government shouldn't look at your phone records resonates across all boundaries, all political stereotypes to all kids, to all young people, to many independents, to many people who haven't considered the Republican Party, you say we're going to be the party that not only defends the Second Amendment, but we're going to be the party that defends the Fourth Amendment. New people will flock to us. We can do this. I think the ideas that actually attract people are the libertarian-ish ideas. If we want to bring new people in, we, got to, we have to be conscience, conscious of where people are and where they're coming from. Martin Luther King talked about there being two Americas, one America where people felt like they had the opportunity to, you know, life and liberty and pursuit of happiness. But there was another America at the time he wrote his speech in 1967 that felt despair and felt a hopelessness and felt like they had no chance. In those days, it was a de jure problem. It was the legal separation and the legal problems that kept people from finding the American dream and opportunity. We got rid of the bad laws, but we still have some of that. And I think a lot of that's in the criminal justice system. And I think if we can treat you know, the, the idea that we're going to protect people's rights not just the Second Amendment, all the other amendments, the Fifth Amendment, your right to a trial by jury, all of those things. Your right not to be kept in prison without a trial. People will think about us and give us a chance. Khalif Browder was 16 years old when he was arrested. He's a poor black kid in the Bronx. He's arrested uh, and alleged to have uh, had an assault on another individual who, it turns out, wasn't in the country illegally and never showed up for trial later on. But the story is worse than that. He spent three years in Rikers without a trial. God knows what happened to him, but he tried to commit suicide four times. That shouldn't happen in America, but think about if you're him or his parents or his neighbors who are poor African American and living in the Bronx, what do you think they think about whether or not America's fair and they have a chance for opportunity? I think there's a chance that if we could become the champions for justice, I mean, why do, why do the liberals get to be for social justice? Why can't we be for justice? Why can't we be the party of the entire Bill of Rights? I see nothing but possibilities. I see the ability to go to Detroit and say, we're for tax cuts, not for Warren Buffett, although he'd get one too, but I'm for a tax cut for Detroit. I'm for a special tax cut, even bigger for Detroit. I'm for tax cuts that even go beyond the tax cuts. I am for everyone, for Appalachia. Why don't we bring to people the idea that we want to give them their money back, but we want to stimulate and help people in poverty, help the long-term unemployed by giving the money back to the community. Think of what a government stimulus is. Government stimulus is I take your money and I've got $100,000 and I say, oh, Mr. Smith will be good at this business, and I give it to him. But I'm wrong most of the time because I have no idea in government who's going to be good at business. But if I give tax money back to someone who's successful in Appalachia or in Detroit, the community has voted. It's democratic capitalism. They've already voted, and they've said this person's successful, so when I give them back more of their money, they're going to hire more people. It's a stimulus that would actually work as opposed to government redistributing and picking the winners and losers. There's all kinds of ways we can take our message. We don't have to dilute what we stand for, but we can take what we believe in, and we just have to take that message in a way that appeals to new people. If we don't, we're never gonna win again. We did great in 2014, but it was a small election. The big elections are much difficult, much more difficult. I wanna be part of that. I know you want the long-term future of our country for people to appreciate how capitalism creates great wealth and humanitarianism. But it's got to be both, not only what you do with Cato and with free market think tanks and all the generosity, but we've got to get involved politically. And I think we've got to try to finally get someone who can lead us out of this morass and understand that our country has enormous untapped potential. I think the sky's the limit. I want to be part of it, and I hope you do too. Thank you.
0: The Libertarian Mind, a Manifesto for Freedom by David Bowes, is the revised, updated, and retitled version of his classic work, Libertarianism, a Primer. Updated to reflect key current issues, new material in The Libertarian Mind presents a libertarian viewpoint on major hot-button topics, including the threat of government surveillance, corruption in Washington, and the policies that led up to the 2008 financial crisis. The Libertarian Mind is available at Better Bookstores and our store, at cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.